Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Mark Anderson is always the last guy standing. Hey, Mark, how's it going? Mark's in the house. Well, hope you had a good start to your new year. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to do a lot of reflecting at the beginning of a new year. I, I like to look back and uh, give thanks. I look forward and I pray uh, and ask God to, to guide and direct me. Well, today I wanted to kick off our new year first service of the week uh, of the year uh, by sharing, you, sharing with you just some of my reflections, some of the things that I've been thinking about. And I don't, I don't know that I've done this a lot in previous years, but I wanted to share with you just kind of what's been on my heart in the last couple of weeks. And so if you walked in this morning, hopefully you received a Baywatch. That's our program. Inside there's some notes and uh, we'll have all the verses listed there for you. Only on one side of the sheet. So you got the other side to to write down some notes if you'd like to do that. And again, you can also follow along on our South Bay Community Church app, which you can get from the Play Store. And again, look at this, watch the screen, but we'll have all the verses up there uh, for you. But, you know, before I, I tell you uh, and share with you some of my own reflections, let me just open up our time in a word of prayer, all right, as we gather together this morning. Well, Father, it is so good to be here this morning. And Lord, as, as we look back, you know, I, I pray that for every one of us that we can all be thankful, even if it was a tough year, that we could be thankful, thankful for your presence, thankful for your faithfulness to be with us, um, even when things were hard. And God, as we look forward, uh, one thing is, uh, is just so apparent to me, and that is we, we need you. We have no idea what tomorrow holds, uh, what six months uh, will uh, will happen to us then, we, we just have any, no clue. And, and so one thing we're, we know is that we need you. And we ask, God, that you would take our hands and that you would walk us, walk with us throughout 2020, and that you would guide and direct us and lead us, and most of all, help us to keep our eyes focused on you. What, this morning, as I share some of my own personal reflections um, as we go into the new year, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just work uh, through me and I pray that you would work in each of our hearts, that we would, that would somehow we would hear uh, clearly, directly from you, not from man, but from you. And so, God, we ask again, we invite you, be here, Lord, touch our hearts. And I want to ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You know, as I've reflected um, here at the beginning of the year uh, on, on the new year, it just seems to me that the world is becoming a darker and darker place. Uh, that was one of my first thoughts. We live in a fallen and messed up world. And with each passing year, things don't seem to be getting any better. Things, to be, things seem to be getting worse. Uh, and just for, for example, recently I, I read that the number, of, uh, the number one killer of Japanese children, beautiful kids, uh, the number one killer of Japanese children between the ages of 10 and 14 is suicide. Imagine if you have a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old, and the number one killer of teenagers, I mean, that age, preteens, 10 to 14, is suicide. Not cancer, not car accidents, but suicide. Young uh, teens and preteens in Japan are killing themselves in record numbers, primarily because of bullying, not just by their peers, but by their coaches and by their teachers and sometimes even by their own parents. And all this to say that the, there's enormous pressure placed on them to succeed 
uh, and to conform to society. Now, I don't know if this date means anything to you, September 1, but September 1 in Japan is considered the deadliest day for school children because that is the day when most kids head back to school. And because they simply can't cope with the thought that when they go back to school, they're going to be bullied, more kids take their lives in Japan on September 1 than on any other day, the day that school begins. And it just reminds me when I re- you know, read these statistics that we live in a, a fallen and messed up world. You know, in the Philippines, uh, about 50 miles northwest of Manila, there's a city called Angeles, like Los Angeles, Los Angeles, and it means angels. But every year, the city attracts tens of thousands of tourists, most of whom are men who come from foreign countries from all over the world to have sex with young women and girls. A reporter for the UK's Daily Mail wrote that the entire town of about about 400,000 people is one big brothel and a hot spot for child sex uh, tourism. And as a result, the Daily Mail reported recently that the slums where many of these young women live are filled with children who've been fathered by foreigners, like seven-year-old Francine, whose picture appeared in in the Daily Mail, whose father is Australian, or 10-year-old Kevin, whose father is also Australian. Kevin's mother was 14 when she gave birth to him. And it goes without saying that once the men are done with their job or their business, they go back home to their families, and these children grow up fatherless and destitute. And we live in such a fallen and messed up world. On July the 31st, 2016, Jameson, Catherine, Ezra, Violet, and Calvin Pals, this beautiful family, were traveling from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Denver, Colorado to make final preparations for their move to Japan where they were going to be missionaries in Nagoya. On a long stretch of highway in Nebraska, while stopped at a construction zone, A semi-truck going 60 miles an hour plowed right into their minivan. It burst into flames, and in an instant, this beautiful family of five were in heaven. Jameson and Catherine were both 29 years old. Ezra was three, Violet was almost two, and Calvin was eight weeks old. And it just breaks my heart that we live in a fallen and messed up world in which there is so much anguish and there is so much pain and there is so much heartache. And the number one reason why our world is so fallen and so messed up is because of the pervasive power of sin. It is because of sin. David wrote, and here's the first verse for you. David wrote in Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven He looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And what does he see? He sees that they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so David said, the Lord looks down from heaven to see the children of of man. And what does he see? He sees nothing but sin. He can't find one man, woman, or child who does good, not even one. 
And the Bible says everyone sinned. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is or whether you have one at all. Everyone sins and it engulfs us all. There is not even one who does good. And it is not only that, it has polluted our physical world, which explains why there are accidents and why there is famine and why there are plagues and why there are natural disasters. It's because of sin. And there isn't a day that goes by, there isn't a day that goes by when we don't feel the repercussions of living in a fallen and messed up world. Every morning we wake up to it and every evening we go to sleep knowing that that's the, the, the truth. And here's the thing, we're not the only ones who feel the effects of sin. Did you know that? We're not the only ones. Take a look at Genesis chapter 6, and I want to show you how sin impacts a holy God, how it impacts a holy God. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, and it says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Okay, so you stop right there. Grab a pen and underline it, that last phrase in verse 6. Underline, grieved him to his heart. All right, so it says here, the Lord looked down, saw the wickedness of man, that it was great. In fact, he saw not only what man was doing, but he saw into his heart and he saw that the intentions of man's heart were evil, only evil, continually evil, and it grieved him to his heart. You know, in Hebrew, the word grieved is the word atzab, and it means to hurt or to be pained. Uh, man's wickedness or sin pains God deeply. And notice it says here, it grieved him to his heart, that preposition to to his heart, that preposition is the Hebrew word al, which means, would actually, which actually means in. So that the, the correct reading of this should be, and it grieved him in his heart. Not to his heart, but it grieved him in his heart. Atzab. So God saw man's wickedness and it grieved him in his heart. Our sins, your sins, induces pain in the heart of God. It hurts him deeply. I mean, every time you fight with your spouse, it hurts him deeply. Every time you feel hate in your heart, it breaks God's heart. Every time you explode in anger, every time you think it's about you and your arrogance and in your pride and in your stubbornness, it hurts God. Every time we cheat, lie, steal, every time we go to that porn site, every time we go out and get high, it pains God in his heart. Atzab, it hurts his heart. And my guess is most of us don't ever stop to think about what our sin does to God. We, we know that it offends God, but maybe we don't actually think about what it does to him. And that is it hurts him deeply. Hurts him deeply. Now let me help you to understand, again, what this must be like from God's perspective. You know, the only thing I could think of um, is to compare this to the agony that a parent might feel when a child goes astray. How many of you know who John Piper is? Pastor John Piper, he's an you know, outstanding Bible teacher, author, he's written about 50 books. He's been the pastor of Bethlehem Bible Church in Minneapolis for over 33 years. Jameson and Catherine, that beautiful family that perished 
uh, in that accident, attended Pastor John Piper's church. Well, Piper has five children of his own. And here's what John Piper's son Abraham wrote in a blog a number of years ago. I'm going to put it up here for you. Abraham wrote this. When I was 19, I decided I'd be honest and stop pretending I was a Christian. At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded and philosophical, but really, I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. Four years of this, and I was strung out, stupefied, and generally pretty low, especially when I was sober or alone. My parents, John and Noel Piper, who are strong believers and who raised their kids as well as any parents I've ever seen, were heartbroken and baffled. I'm sure that they were wondering why the child they raised, they tried to raise right was such a ridiculous screw-up now. That was his son. That was Piper's son, Abraham. To say that John and Noel Piper's hearts were broken um, and pained by their wayward son was, was to put it mildly. The thought that he was out there somewhere getting drunk every night, the thought that he could be driving drunk, the thought that they could get a, a visit from the police department at any hour of the night or day informing them that their son was arrested for a DUI or that their son was in an accident in which someone was killed or that their son was actually killed himself. The thought that he was out there sleeping around and could get someone pregnant and she could get an abortion, the thought that he was living in willful disobedience to God was more pain than they could bear. It was more pain than they could bear. And John Piper recounted of that difficult time, quote, my, ma my main memory of Abraham's prodigal years is tears. Just tears as I knelt in prayer. I would remember the nine-year-old Abraham walking with me to 6.30 a.m. winter prayer meetings. Willingly, I would take hold of Jesus' cloak and cry, Oh, Jesus, please don't let go of him. And their hearts were utterly wrecked. Utterly wrecked. Utsopped by what their son did. And such is the heart of a father or of a mother for their son or their daughter. And if you're a parent, and if you've ever had a wayward child, you know what that's like. It's what keeps you up at night. And this is also the heart of a God who loves us. This is the heart of a God who has a heart for you and for me. And, and whenever we stray from him because of sin, it wrecks him. Atzab. Most of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Pastor Greg mentioned it on Christmas Eve. A young man asked his father to give him his inheritance even before his father was dead. His father gave it to him. And the son went out and took his inheritance and squandered it, squandered it on loose living. And before you know it, it was all gone. Every single penny of it was gone, his inheritance. And eventually the son came to his senses and overcome with remorse and contriteness, the son decided to return home to his father. And I love the way the New King James Version translation describes what happened next. Take a look at Luke 15, verse 20. And it says, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I love this description. When the father saw his son coming toward him, he didn't wait for him to come to him. He ran toward him. And then it says here, he fell on his neck. Now, the other translations don't quite put it this way, but he fell on his neck. And I love this. And this doesn't mean that he tripped and fell and somehow landed on his neck, 
right? The idea here was that his father grabbed his son's neck and pulled it toward himself and he buried his face in his son's neck and he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him. The Greek word for kissed is katafileo and it means to kiss repeatedly and fervently, not just a little, you know, tap on the lips. I mean, this is fervent, repeated kissing. And so the father fell on his neck. He buried his face in his son's neck and he kissed him over and over and over and over and over again on his neck and on his face and on his cheek and on his forehead and probably on his head. He couldn't get enough of him. And what we see in this parable is not the love of a father. No, what we see in this passage is the intense, intense love of a father. And this is, this, this is a stunning image of the, the love that our father has for us. A stunning image of God's love for you that if he could, he would wrap his arms around your neck and bury his face in it and kiss you over and over and over again because he can't get enough of you. Likewise, when we read in Genesis 6.6 6, that God's heart was atzab, we see, we see this same kind of love, this intense kind of love that would cause his heart to break, that it would cause his heart to hurt because we have sinned against him. And the upshot of all this is simply this, that God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. You may be all alone in this world. All alone. You may be married and feel all alone in this world. But God loves you. Your husband or wife may have just left you. But God loves you. You may be a widow or a widower. And all your children have grown up and they've moved away and they have their own families and you're all alone. But God loves you. Maybe all of your friends have gotten married and they all have kids and they're raising their families and you find as a single person, you're all alone. But God loves you. And it doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're 98 years old in a nursing home waiting to die or whether you, were, you just came into the world as a brand new baby. God loves you. Maybe you're being bullied. Maybe you're entering into the new year victimized by some very bad people. Maybe you've strayed far away from God. I want you to know that God loves you. And if you still can't wrap your heads around this idea that God loves you, just, just think about it. If you, if you had children, think of how much you love your children. If you have children, think of how much you love your children. I know how much I love my children. I can't get enough of them. And yet God loves me and them even more. Magnify that, multiply that by a billion times. And that's how much God loves you. So that's my first reflection for the new year. And that is that God is love, that God loves me, that God loves you. You can write that one down. God is love. A few moments ago, I told you about Pastor John Piper's son, Abraham, who was 19 years old when he uh, broke his parents' heart by, by walking away from his faith and by choosing a life of partying and sex. Well, here's what happened to him four years later. Here's what he wrote. One morning before 8 o'clock, I went to the library to check my email. I had a message from a girl and I'd met a few weeks, that I'd met a few weeks before, and her email mentioned a verse in Romans. Romans is a, a book in the New Testament portion of the Bible. And I went down to the Circle K and bought a 40-ounce can of Miller High Life for $1.29. I 
And then I went back to where I was staying, rolled a few cigarettes, cracked open my drink, and started reading Romans. And by the time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone, the ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. The best way I know how to describe what happened to me that morning is that God made it possible for me to love Jesus. And when he makes this possible at the same, and at the same time gives you a glimpse of the true wonder of Jesus, it is impossible to resist his call. And Abraham came back. He came back to God. And one of the first things he did was he wrote an article. He wrote an article for parents on how they can reach out to their wayward children. You see, God has a way of redeeming our hurts. God has a way of turning things around. God has a way of making that which is wrong right, that making things that are old new, making things that are dark light. He has a way of cleaning up our mess. You know, in the book of Genesis, there's a story of treachery and power and betrayal and deceit and seduction. Sounds like something out of Hollywood, but it's a story about a young teenager, 17-year-old named Joseph. And, and Joseph wasn't liked by his 10 older half-brothers because Joseph was their father's favorite. So without their father knowing it, they wanted to kill him, but they decided instead to sell him into slavery. He ended up somehow in Egypt where he was sold to Potiphar, who was the captain of, the, of Pharaoh's guard. And eventually, Joseph rose to power to become the second most powerful man in Egypt. And then one day famine struck the land, the entire land struck by famine, and there was no food. But Joseph was in charge. They, he had saved up, and he was in charge of distributing grain. And people from all over the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And among those who came to Egypt to buy grain were his brothers. And when they came, they didn't recognize his brother who was dressed in royal garb as he distributed the grain, but, his, but Joseph recognized them. He recognized them, and they didn't recognize him. But to make a long story short, Joseph eventually revealed his identity to his brothers, and, and they were terrified that he would somehow now seek revenge because of what they did to him. But Joseph didn't. Instead, here's what Joseph said to them in Genesis 50, verse 20. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, they intended to harm him when they sold him. They, they intended to get rid of him. They even wanted to kill him. They wanted to have nothing to do with him. They intended it for harm, but God switched it around. He turned it around and he allowed Joseph to rise to power in Egypt so that he could one day be in a position to save not only his own family, but his own people, the Jews. You see, God is a redeemer. God is a redeemer and he can clean up our messes. And he can turn darkness into light and he can turn wrong into right. He can make things that are old make, make things brand new. It reminds me of Romans 8, 28. You know that one. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. God causes all things not just good things, but all things, even bad things, to work together for good. And so my, my second reflection is this. God is a redeemer. No matter how messed up your life is going into 2020, God can redeem your life. God can turn things around. He can make things work for good in your life. 
Maybe you're starting out the year in a world of hurt, or maybe you're starting out the year deep in debt. Maybe you're starting out the year and you are that wayward child. Maybe you're caught in a cycle of addiction. Maybe you're overwhelmed every single day by this intense physical pain. Every single day you wake up and there's something in your body that absolutely hurts. Maybe you're starting out the year and you're reeling from the loss of a loved one. Maybe you are starting out the year and you feel like a total failure. Don't give up because our God is a redeemer and God can turn your life around. He can make things work together for good. He can make all things new and darkness into light. God is a redeemer. So those are my first two reflections. God is love and God is a redeemer. And that brings me to my final two reflections. You know, it used to be that I was driven by much ambition. And for those of you who are aware, uh, after I graduated from Pepperdine, I worked in the world of politics. For about 10 years, I worked for the president of the Los Angeles City Council and then eventually for one of the members of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. And, and you have to be ambitious to work for a politician because by nature, they are creatures of ambition. I mean, as soon as they're elected, they're looking to get reelected. I mean, as soon as they're elected, they're looking four years down the line to get reelected. And I always wanted my bosses to get reelected because it meant job security for me. And so you have to be ambitious. And I was ambitious. Now, the dictionary defines ambition in two ways. The first one is this. This is the first definition of ambition. And, and, and it's this. It's a strong desire to do or to achieve something. A strong desire to do or to achieve something. Now, there's nothing wrong with this kind of ambition. In fact, I think, it's, I think it's important that we all have some kind of ambition, some kind of a desire to do something or to achieve something. Every one of us ought to have some kind of ambition, a desire to do something or achieve something. Well, there's a second definition of ambition. comes from the dictionary, and it's this. It's an ardent desire for rank, fame, or power. It's an ardent desire for rank, fame, or power. See the difference between the two? My ambition was the second one. I mean, it really had more to do with my ardent desire for rank, fame, and power. And in the world of politics, those are things that, that are achievable. You know, you, in politics, you like to get your face in front of the, the, the cameras, right? It, you can achieve these kinds of things. But here's how Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan minister, characterized this second type of ambition. And I'm going to read it for you real slow. I'm putting this quote up here for you because I want you to let it sink in. He said, ambition is a hidden plague. It is the engineer of deceit. It is the mother of hypocrisy. It is the parent of envy. Get this one. It is the original vice of the angels. It is the destroyer of virtue. It is the blinder of hearts. You see, the problem with having an ardent desire for rank, fame, and power is that people will often do whatever it takes to get it. They'll do whatever it takes to get it. 
including compromising their convictions, sacrificing their character, placing their families on the back burner, even selling their souls if that's what's required. And as I reflected on what I want to do and achieve in 2020, I was reminded of what the Apostle Paul said about ambition. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5.9. He said, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Notice he didn't say, therefore, we have as our ambition rank, power, and fame. He didn't say that. His ambition was to be pleasing to the Lord. It was all about him and not about himself. He wanted to be pleasing to the Lord in every way, in the way that he lived, in the way that he thought, in the way that he talked, in the way that he acted, in the way that he reacted, in the way that he interacted, in the way that he behaved. You know, lately, another thought I've had is with each passing year, I mean, as we turn the calendar pages in January, another thought I've had is that I'm struck by the fact that I don't have a lot of time left. You know, with each passing year, we get another year older and we get a little bit closer to Jesus, right? Every one of us. I'm not the only ones. Mark, you're right behind, I'm right behind you, right? We get a little bit closer to Jesus. And so I don't have a lot of time left. I don't know how much time I have left, but I don't have a lot of time left. So in 2020, I just resolved, and especially after my cancer scare, I want my life to be about Jesus. I want it to be about Jesus. I want to live for him. I want, to, I want to live to please him. And that's my third reflection. I want to live for Jesus. We write that one down. What about you? What is your ambition for 2020? What do you want to live for this year? Do you want to live for you? You want to live to fatten your bank account? What you can't take with you even if you could and you can't take it with you do you want to live it do you live it for your kids it's all about your kids your whole schedule is around your kids or you make it all about Jesus maybe it's all about drinking gallons of cheap sangria make it about Jesus two weeks before he and his family were killed Jameson posted this on his website, which he established to get ready to go to Japan. He, he wrote this. He said, two weeks before he, he died, in our last post, we shared why we feel burdened for unreached people groups. More specifically, we feel a burden for Japan, the largest unreached nation in the world. Think about this. 127 million people and a little more than 500,000 of them are Christ followers which means you can go, you can walk into a, a university of 25,000 students and maybe you'll find 50 students there who are Christians. He went on, he wrote, we desire to see the country of Japan filled with healthy, outward-facing, Christ-exalting churches, manifestations of Jesus Christ where the millions of Japanese people with depression can take refuge because they are plagued with depression. 
where the one million young men who have locked themselves in their rooms can find freedom from shame. There's this syndrome called hikikomori, in which these young men will go into their rooms, they'll lock the doors, and they will never come out, except for mama who comes and, and gives them some food. Won't take a job, won't go out into the marketplace, won't go to the malls, won't come out of their rooms. They'll stay there for years and years and years. Where the 30,000 who would commit suicide every year can instead find hope. And it's obvious that they were very well aware of the suicide rate even among 10 to 14 year olds. And it was Jameson and Catherine's ambition to take the gospel to Japan. Their dream was that millions of Japanese people would turn from darkness to light. And why would they do that, you ask? Why would, why would you waste your one and only life Pack up, sell everything you have, pack up your kids and pack up your belongings and move to a foreign country that is not all that much, that, that is not that very welcoming of foreigners. Why would you do that? Are you just kind of, you're just hyper-religious? Well, a month before they went home to be with the Lord, Jameson told this story on his website. And I'll put it up here for you. He said, there were two children living in a secluded village in the sub-Saharan Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa. A boy who was about five years old and a girl who was two years old. Like many children in their area, they did not know their father and depended solely upon their mother who was sick with HIV AIDS. When she died, they were left without anyone to care for them. The five-year-old boy, now the caretaker, imagine that, five-year-old boy taking care of his two-year-old daughter, son, um, sister, led his sister from house to house looking for food. After several weeks, the children, who were already malnourished while their mother was alive, looked as though they wouldn't live much longer. A woman from the village told them that they needed to go to an orphanage in a nearby town. It would be the only place where they could find food. The pastor who ran the orphanage already had too many children to house and feed. So when the two newly orphaned children arrived, he regrettably turned them away. An older orphan saw the little boy and girl turning back and begged the pastor to let him share his own food. The boy set out to find them, but they were already gone. The pastor, feeling guilty for having turned them away, went out to search. He too was unsuccessful and for several days was weighed down by grief. Two weeks later, he saw something lie in a ditch. He bent down and picked up a lifeless body and saw the face of the two-year-old girl he had turned away. She tragically, but not surprisingly, starved to death. The pastor never found her older brother. Jameson went on to write, Now, I like to think every single one of us, if given the opportunity, would do whatever we could to give those two kids food. The thought that there are children in the world who are starving to death is emotionally unbearable for anyone who is willing to actually consider it. But it is a reality. On average, somewhere between 6,000 and 7,000 children under the age of five die every day, every day, today and tomorrow from hunger-related causes. And though most people do not have the same emotional response, it is equally true and eternally more tragic that there are, according to conservative estimates, two billion people who will never have the opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The context of John 6, where this passage comes from, makes it clear. Jesus does for the human soul what food does for the human body. As surely as food is needed for life, so Jesus is needed for eternal life. People will eat and eat and eat and eventually die. But if people eat the bread of life, they will live forever. It is good to share food with the hungry, but how much greater is it to share Jesus Christ? And that's why Jameson and Catherine were willing to give everything up so they could go, so that, so that others would live. They wanted to go so that others would live eternally, forever in heaven. When I thought about this story, when I read this story, it reminded me of Paul's ambition in Romans 15, 20, final verse. And he said, and thus I make it my ambition to what? To preach the gospel. I make it my ambition to share the good news. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. It was his ambition. It was their ambition to go where Christ has not been named. To a country where Christ has not been named. To share the gospel so that people who are dying could live. What's your ambition for 2020? Will you make this, here's my challenge, will you make this your ambition as well? To take life to the dying? That just leads me to my final reflection of the year. You can write this one down. I want to go, I want to go so others will live. I want to go so others will live. You know, this year my prayer is that we can extend our influence. You know, God is doing something really special here at South Bay Community Church. And my prayer is that we will not, as I said, church is not a place we ought to go to. Church is not a place we ought to go from, right? And my prayer is that we will go, that more of you will go than ever before. My prayer is that some of you will go to Mexico here coming up in March. And I know it's a dangerous place to go, right? But I... I don't think, I'm not sure that we should be concerned about those kinds of things anymore as, as much as we, we just need to go whatever it takes. My prayer is that, that God would raise up some people out of our church who will say, I want to be a full-time missionary. I want to be a full-time missionary in Iraq. I want to be a full-time missionary in Afghanistan. I want to be a full-time missionary in Ghana. I want to be a full-time missionary in Romania. I want to be a full-time missionary in Thailand. I want my prayers that God would extend our reach, not just around the world, but, but here as well, right here in our own backyard. Right here in our own backyard, there are a million people. And my guess is, if we called every single church in the South Bay and asked them how many people go to, their, go to your church on Sunday morning or on Saturday and Sundays, my guess is among all the churches in the South Bay, there probably aren't more than 50,000 people who go to church. If that. Which means that there are 950,000 people in the South Bay who need to hear the gospel. And so one of the things we're thinking about is 
You know, maybe we, maybe we can start a satellite church one of these days. We can find a leader and a team because we're outgrowing our own space. In fact, we're, we're about ready to sign a lease to take some office space in those industrial park space right next door to us because we're outgrowing our space. And, and so we think that if we can move our offices there, then we can use our offices. We can refurbish, we can have small groups there and we can put our kids' ministries there because they're, they're meeting in the faith center. And we're just, we're just trying to think of ways that we can maximize our space so we can reach more people. And, and even at, at some point, we're even thinking that at some point here in 2020, we might have to add a fourth service, maybe a, a third one on Sunday morning. And I don't know when that's going to be, but we're just, those are all things we're thinking about. And then just recently, the plight of, of young girls and young boys who are sex trafficked in places like the Philippines and Thailand, and even here in the United States, man, has been weighing heavy on my heart and on, on Cheryl's heart. And we've been talking about this a lot. Like, we need to do something about this. And I believe God has positioned our church to do something. And what that is, I'm not sure yet. But I'm praying, like, God, show us what we can do, how we can make a difference. And so those are the things I've been thinking about as we enter the new year. All I know is this. I want to live for the Lord, to please the Lord. I want to go so that others will live. I want to help send, because I also know that not everybody's supposed to go. Not everyone's supposed to go on a mission trip. Although I want to challenge you, if you're able, physically able, to consider going on at least one short-term mission trip, once in, at least once in your lifetime. This year may not be the year. And I'm not talking about going on a tour thing to Israel. I'm talking about going there, to, going someplace to work and sharing the gospel. I want to go where, so that people can live. And, and, and you know why? It goes back to the first two reflections. I want, to, I want, I want us to do that because, because God is love. God loves me and God loves you. And God redeemed my life and he redeemed your life. And so how can we keep it to ourselves? So what will you do in 2020? What will your ambitions be? I hope it won't be just to go to church every single week and then go home. Do something great with your life. The one and only life God has given to you. Do something great with it. Live for him. Live to make others know. Well, let's close our time in prayer. you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed what do you want to do this year that will really make a difference well if you live it for you even if you live it for your kids I mean, it'll be good for your kids. But the real difference is when you live it for God and you go so that others will live. I want to challenge you 
because God loves you. Because God redeemed your life. That you this year would do something significant. Lord, we come before you this morning. And Lord, first of all, the first thing I want to ask, Father, forgive me. Forgive all of us, Lord, for the hurt and the pain that we've caused you by our sin. Forgive us for hurting you so deeply. Lord, thank you for loving us in such a way that you would grab our necks and you would fall on it and kiss us over and over and you demonstrated that so well when you sent your your one and only son to die on a cross for us to redeem us to forgive us to give us new life And so, Father, here at the beginning of the year, we come to you with such gratitude in our hearts, such thankfulness in our hearts for you and for your love for us and for the redemption that you've given us in Christ. And Lord, now, stir in every one of us, God, that this year, in 2020, this is not a New Year's resolution, God, but it's a commitment of our heart that we would live to please you in every area of our life, in our businesses, in our schooling, in our homes, with our family, with our children, in our personal lives, in every way that we would live to please you. And then, God, do a work in us that we would be people willing to go so that others will live. And for those of us who can't go, Maybe we can encourage others to go. Maybe we can pray for them. Maybe we can give so that they can go, but help every one of us to be committed to this endeavor, helping people know who you are. So Father, this is our heart. This is our commitment. This is our prayer. Lord, we give ourselves to you. And we thank you, God, for your love for us. Now, Lord, as we... Remember your son and what he did for us through communion. God, touch our hearts. Touch our hearts. And I ask these things in Jesus' name.